Hello and welcome to Spy Hard's podcast, where your hosts, for the 100th time, go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur, singing Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head. Um, yeah, well, this is the 100th raindrop that has fallen upon everyone's head now. Indeed it is. What a journey. What a wild journey that is, you know, has just been leading all to this very moment. I, I can't believe we've made it this far, and we're going to have a special episode next week really celebrating the uh, the 100th episode, although technically speaking, this isn't our 100th episode. We've had lots of little episodes and interviews along the way, but this is our 100th main episode review. Um, but yeah, we'll be talking more about that next week, and we'll tell you more about that at the end of the show. But Cam, as it's our 100th episode, we surely have the best of the best, the cream of the crop, the top spy movie you could ever consider to celebrate this momentous occasion. Well, I saw some guesses on Twitter that we might be doing Mission Impossible because, of course, we have the knock list. And if you're going to celebrate 100, you're going to do it by evoking the film that inspired the list that we talk about every single week. Sure. That would only, only make sense for the 100th episode, correct? I, I would think so, but this is Spy Hard's podcast. That is true, and we aim to disappoint every time. <laughs> and so, <laughs> I mean, it's, it, There's a history here, folks, of taking our own legs out. So, um, yeah. Mm. That's right. We hit you with a Bond film. And then we followed up with British Agent or something like that. <laughs> the house on 92nd Street, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> so we instead stayed on the year 1996 and looked at the same weekend that Mission Impossible opened and said, what else opened that weekend? Hold on, spy hard. <laughs> Wait, this opened the same weekend as Mission Impossible? In North America, yes, it did. Are they insane? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Wow, I didn't actually know that bit of fact. I, wow, that's blown me away. Whoever, well, to be fair, we have a Spy Master interview this week with the director and co-writer of this film. So I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about that. But yeah, that's uh, an insane move to put this up against Mission Impossible. Yeah, I remember when Austin Powers, The Spy Who Shagged Me, was coming out. Do you remember a lot of their marketing was geared towards um, Star Wars Episode One imagery? No. Yeah, like a lot of the teasers were like very like Star Warsy imagery, and it was kind of like they would fool you and pull the rug out, and it was like actually Doctor Evil there as opposed to Darth Vader. Okay, and um, that was kind of the joke. And they did not open that movie the same day as The Phantom Menace. They waited like two weeks before they opened that film, and it was a huge hit because of that. <laughs> it makes you wonder if Mission Impossible was actually more of a gamble than people think it was. Well, yeah, I mean, I think at the time it was like, well, it's based on a show from the 60s. I don't know if anyone cares that much. I think it was really just being sold as a Tom Cruise vehicle. But even at the time, though, I don't think Tom Cruise had had many duds. I think even, I'd have to check the stats on this, but I feel like even far and away, while a critical disaster was probably profitable. But we're talking too much about Mission Impossible, and we're not giving the folks that this week. No, not yet. Mission Impossible is a little bit further down the road. We have a set time for it, but it's not right now. We're going to talk about the 1996 comedy Spy Hard, which we wanted to celebrate the origins of our podcast. And when we were kicking around names 
for the show. We went through a few variations. There was like Live and Let Spy was one. Um, for Your Ears Only was another. Um, I think, didn't we have a Mission Impossible one as well? Didn't we have like Mission Impossible? And then that turned out to our friends at Mission Impossible ended up using that anyway. Yeah, I think you're right. There was, I know a couple others, some really tortured ones that I wish I could remember because they're probably really funny to say out loud now. Um, but I, I wouldn't go back into it because we might realize our mistake and be like, ah, we should really have gone with that. Let's just scrap 100 episodes of Spy Hars <laughs> and, and go with, uh, I don't know, you know, for your ears only. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. Um, and so we settled on Spy Hards, and I don't think it was because of the movie Spy Hard necessarily. It was because we just like the idea of, you know, diehards, like diehard fans and then spy hards. That sounds really good. But there was that pause of, well, there is that movie called Spy Heart. Is that going to be confusing? Uh, and then we just said, who cares? And rolled with it. Yeah. Uh, technically, we have an S on the end. This film is Spy Hard. We're Spy Hards. There's two of us. So I guess uh, you could pluralize it. But it makes sense for 100 to celebrate the movie that in some ways gave us our name. Absolutely. And I've spoken about Spy Hard online to people before on Twitter, and it, it, it's had a lot of feedback. People do want to hear this episode. And speaking of the film, and we'll get to the letterbox.com uh, synopsis in a second, but I, I do recall watching this as a kid. I was definitely a Leslie Nielsen fan as a kid. I loved the Naked Gun films, Airplane. He was, not an, uh, he was one of those guys I went to. I really loved those spoof films growing up when I was a teenager. They like... Um, What's the other one? Hot Shots. It's not really him, but those sort of spoof comedies um, was really yeah. really my bag. But um, when I went to revisit this, I didn't really recall any of it. Oh, interesting. What about you? So I, too, was really into those spoof movies. They fell right into my you know early teen years um, and even a little bit before that. So I, I remember watching Naked Gun with my grandparents and think it was like the greatest thing ever mm -hmm. watching all of those movies. Naked Gun 33 and a third was one of the earlier movies. You know, I went and saw just with friends on our own. Um, but yeah, the Hot Shots films, even like ones I didn't care for as much. I remember just sitting down and watching multiple times like Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves or not Prince of Thieves, uh, Men in Tights, I should say. Yeah. Or um, Dracula Dead and Loving It. Um, top secret top secret i should, should also note um spaceballs was a big movie for me mm -hmm. growing up as well um so it naturally made sense for me that any of these leslie nielsen you know comedies i would go and see i did not see spy hard in theaters though and i recall it was because my friend mark really wanted to see spy hard and i had kind of at that point discovered two things one was kind of like the big blockbuster stuff like independence day and you know those types of movies that i was really excited about but also this was like the boom of independent film where i had watched movies like pulp fiction sling blade and so like i was really into uh dead man walking a lot of what like adult dramas were doing and i was at that weird cusp of being like 15 years old and being like you know what i want to like start watching more adult stuff and I remember Spy Hard came out and I like threw a fit about going to it in theaters. My friend Mark was like, why can't we go? I'm like, because there's more important things to be seeing. So didn't see it in theaters, but I remember he rented it. Uh, I was not a very giving friend when it came to like <laughs> buckling for other people's movie choices. Nothing, nothing's changed. I was going to say, yeah, I don't know that much has changed there. But um, <laughs> so uh, it hit video and I remember he rented it and we watched it. And I did enjoy it because I went and saw Wrongfully Accused like a year or two later. 
So it wasn't like I was out on Leslie Nielsen. For some reason, I just had something, you know, who knows why I wouldn't go see Spy Hard. Maybe reviews were weak and that was enough to uh, send me in the opposite direction. But nonetheless, like I remember watching it at his house and enjoying the experience. I don't have a lot of big memories except for I was hugely enamored with the Weird Al opening musical number, you know, in the style of Thunderball because I was a huge Bond kid and I thought that was just genius. Well, that's a, one of my favorite bits of the film. And then, you know, you also do have a tribute band to Weird Al. Yeah. Uh, Weird Al Kamkovich, of course. Um, of course. One-man band. Uh, it's one-man poker band. And uh, also one man has only ever turned up to see it. I'm like Dick Van Dyke and Mary Poppins with like the drum on my back and like the uh, the elaborate uh, yeah outfit. Yeah, I, I can see it now and I, I wish I couldn't. <laughs> hey, Mary. <laughs> We'll come back to accents in a bit, actually, funnily enough. But uh, for those of you who haven't seen Spy Hard, uh, you've heard us say the word Spy Hards for the last two years, but Spy Hard, here is your letterbox.com synopsis. I look forward to hearing this one. I don't look forward to reading it. <laughs> Spy Hard. All the action, all the women, half the intelligence. The evil General Rancor has his sights set on world domination, and only one man can stop him. Dick Steele, also known as Agent WD-40. Rancor needs to obtain a computer circuit for the missile that he is planning to fire. So Steele teams up with Veronique Urinsky, a KGB agent whose father designed the chip. Together they try to locate the evil mastermind's headquarters, where Veronique's father and several other hostages are being held. Good lord. That last bit is the end scene of the film. But I don't even care about any of that. The entire plot of the movie is a loose clothesline to hang gags on. Like, the idea of doing this extended synopsis of the movie completely loses the point of what the whole movie is anyway. Oh, sure. I Usually we'll have like a plot analysis in our reviews. I can't think of what we could analyze. No, exactly. Um, I did notice, though, I was looking at my IMDb page while you were reading that. I didn't realize that Veronique's uh, agent uh, designation was 3.14. I didn't know that. It's what, it, yeah, it's listed on uh, IMDb. Either they said it very quickly and I missed it, or um, it's was like cut from the movie or something, but it's in the IMDb page. I don't know. Well, interesting you mentioned cuts. Uh, that's one thing we definitely do talk about with the director later on the week, um, Rick Friedberg, cause, uh, uh, and I'll let you get to that in your behind-the-scenes stuff, Cam. But uh, yeah, apparently there was quite a lot of that going on. But yeah, in terms of that synopsis, yeah, I don't know. Uh, but then I wouldn't want to read like the Hot Shots synopsis. Like, what's that going to no. say? Airplane. They land a plane. Yeah. Where do you go from there? So I... It, it's a fool's errand to try and write one of these things, and fair play for writing two whole paragraphs about Spy Hard. <laughs> it's more than I've ever done. <laughs> well, Cam, I teased it just before, but how did we get hard? Spy Hard. <laughs> well, you know, as you queued up there, we have an interview with Rick Friedberg um, that will be landing this week. And so I'm going to leave a lot of the behind the scenes from his end to him because we've already conducted the interview. It's a really in-depth, you know, breakdown of how Spy Hard happened, what some of the issues were, et cetera, et cetera. So that is going to be a fantastic listen for everyone, and I definitely think you should check it out. But 
Some, some background I'll give on him. Rick Friedberg got into the film industry in 1980 as the co-writer, director of a TV movie called Prey TV, starring um, Spy Hard's icon, Dabney Coleman. Hell yeah. And then he moved... Yeah. And then he moved into a 1983 film called Off the Wall, starring Paul Sorvino and Rosanna Arquette that I think pretty forgotten, but it looks like kind of one of those post-Smokey um, and the Bandit type of movies, as far as I could tell. Um, and I don't think this movie was a particular success. So he mostly moved into, you know, doing commercial work as well as doing music videos. He did the Van Halen video for Hot for Teacher. He did a number of Wasp videos and, you know, had a continuing career through there. And then in the 1990s, started working with Leslie Nielsen on these bad golf videos, which were those like mail order comedy videos that were kind of popular at that time. There was like the Dorf does golf ones. But Leslie Nielsen did a, a number of these where it was just like spoofing golf, you know, going on the golf course and just being ridiculous. Well, I mean, not to like, you know, be the opposite of like hello fellow kids, but I have no idea about mail order VHSs. I, mean, I was born in 87, but I, I never once ordered a VHS. I went to Blockbuster and rented stuff. But what the hell is a mail order movie? You're saying you didn't have mail order beta tapes? No. Okay. Because <laughs> you guys didn't use VHS, right? Yes. Did you? I th- Where'd you get I that you intel from? Tapes. What are you talking... I've got VHSs right on my shelf above me, you fool. That's weird. Why did I think that, like, uh... What do you think we use? Laserdisc? No, beta tapes. No? I thought that the beta wars, uh, that Europe took on the beta tapes and North America got the VHS tapes. I, I, I can't speak to that end, but I, I can definitely assure you VHS won here. At least from when I was watching television in the late 80s, early 90s. Really? How dare you go and check? I see you Googling right now, Cameron. I know my existence. I know what I grew up in. (laughs) What are you doing? Put your phone down. (laughs) Listeners at home, you can't hear Cam, but he's frantically typing to try and find a way to say I'm wrong. (laughs) Well, this is a hundred episodes of frustration building up. Well, I can't find it right now. I have water. Nah. I have water under my screen, so I can't type properly. <laughs> One hundred <laughs> episodes, folks. Anyways, um, needless to say, it was like you'd see it at the time. They weren't like widely popular. It's not like I was buying all my VHS tapes off TV ads, but like they would put out collections, like maybe um, you know, the Mr. Bean things when they were released initially would just be mail order. Um, or like TV shows where they didn't think there was maybe as big an audience, but they would have like these mail order sets. Um, also, there would be like sports blooper videos that, you know, would be made probably through like Sports Illustrated and things like that, that they would sell um, just on TV ads, that sort of thing. I have no idea what you're talking about. I, I mean, I, I believe they happen yeah. because obviously they're on IMDb. I completely understand the concept, I suppose, but just... It just feels so weird because we had video stores here. So if you wanted to go and buy something, you'd go to the video store. At that point, I mean, I suppose there was no internet at that point. So maybe that's how you tracked things down that weren't as popular. Like you're not going to buy a copy of the Ipcris file at your local HMV here in the UK. You're going to have to order it off of Amazon now. But in the 80s and the 90s, I don't think you could buy Ipcris file from your local Woolworths, which is a UK reference. you probably had to mail order it, perhaps. Well, I wonder if it's also because VHS tapes, unless they were mass-produced, which tended to only be really big movies, they were very expensive. They were $100 to buy. 
So, like, if you a lot of the movies you'd rent, for example, probably Spy Hard. If you went in 1996 to try to buy a copy of Spy Hard, you probably wouldn't have been able to. You would have had to um, probably buy an expensive copy until maybe later down the road when they would manufacture some. That I'm, I don't know for sure with Spy Hard, but that would be the case for a lot of movies where it would only be the big titles that would be released to the market. And so I think that was probably a way of doing these order things was they didn't want to like plug up stores with like VHS collections of North and South, the miniseries. But if they can sell them through a you know TV ad, they know exactly how many they need to manufacture to ship out. Are you sure the difficulty for buying Spy Hard VHSs was not the fact that when you went into the video store, they just laugh you back out of the video store, if you ask? <laughs> well, I remember... For example, with Goldeneye, having to get my name put on a rental copy to buy when it was finally available. But that's Bond film. Why on earth would there be a, a, a waiting... Uh, well, actually, I'll take it back. A waiting list makes sense. That's fair. But do they not just mass produce them and then what's left? Because no. you go to charity shops now and they're stock full of old VHS tapes. The mass production stuff really kicked in with DVD and the late era VHS. Um, that's mm. when it became more of a just home buyer's market, uh, for just like buying all these home videos. But like a lot of movies were not available, especially when they first hit rentals, cause they didn't want to take business away from rental stores. So it's like, I'm sure there was a, you know, public Goldeneye VHS tape that was released at a certain point, but not right away. Cause they wanted you to go and, you know, rent it at video stores and channel that money to the studio. And for some reason it would be very grainy around the Xenia on the top in the sauna sequences. My copy of Goldeneye had like a glitch at the top of the screen through the entire movie that had blurring because it was just a well-used VHS mm. copy. You you didn't love, react to my joke there, and I appreciate you being an adult about all this. Thank you. Thank you. I, I've matured over 100 episodes. Um, mm. So getting back to Rick Friedberg, he'd done these golf videos. So he had a relationship with Leslie Nielsen that would lead into Spy Hard, and he breaks all of that down in the interview that we did with him. He would go on to do like second unit on CSI Miami and the TV show Scorpion as well. So he's had a career, does a lot of commercial work, but Spy Hard was the end of his feature film career. And, you know, he co-wrote this movie with his son um, and his son's writing partner, Aaron Seltzer. And those two, Jason Friedberg and Aaron Seltzer, this was their debut. And they would go on to write the initial script for Scary Movie which the Wayans brothers, I think, had a heavy amount of influence in kind of reshaping. And they would then go on to write and direct movies like Date Movie, Epic Movie, Meet the Spartans, Vampires Suck, that whole string of spoof movies that really took over the 2000s. Speaking of cream of the crop. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, they don't make spoof movies anymore, Scott. Can you put a pin in that? I genuinely want to come back to that point at the end of the episode. Okay, yeah. So the initial concept for Spy Hard, I believe, was the two of them, Friedberg and Seltzer, and then Rick Friedberg jumped on and you know directed it and did a uh, script pass with his writing partner, Dick Chudnow, who had co-written Prey TV and Off the Wall. So that was sort of the writing credits for that film. Uh, it was the four of them kicking that one around. And then... Leslie Nielsen, it's interesting to kind of talk about because, I mean, let's be honest, he was the reason I went and saw this movie, or didn't go and see it, but watched it on video. Like, Leslie Nielsen was a huge draw. <laughs> Wasn't that big of a draw, then, was he? 
I don't understand. It was the reason I didn't go. I went to Naked Gun 33 and a third, and I went to Wrongfully Accused. What happened? You went to the Fugitive spoof film. I did. And you didn't go to the spy movie spoof film, despite being a you know confessed Thunderball fan. I don't know. I don't know what was going on. Maybe it was just like the summer of movies I was more excited for. I don't know. I could just see, like, I'm, I'm guessing you're about, what, 18 by this point? No, I was 15. Ah, uh, okay. In, in my mind's eye, when you're about that age, you've got sort of a goth phase going on, and you're like, I only watch independent films, mom. And it's like David Lynch only, mom. And There was no goth phase, but I was getting more and more interested in, yeah, the independent film boom of that era. Was it done by Fincher? No. Well, I'm not going. <laughs> I don't Fincher was he just come onto the scene at that point. Seven was ninety five, but yeah. I this is me showing I don't know films. That's all that was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Leslie Nielsen, you know, had kicked off his career in nineteen fifty and had been this like utility player who just popped up through tons and tons of TV. He did like a man from Uncle two parter. He did a ton of stuff. Um and I remember seeing the movie Forbidden Planet, which he's really fun and that's a terrific sci-fi movie that had a lot of um dna that led to star trek and um it wasn't until 1980 that he did airplane and just kicked off this run of this you know comedic leading man spoof parts and he mostly did airplane i think because he was in the poseidon adventure playing the captain of the boat and they thought it would be genius to have him be you know the pilot of the plane in airplane i'm pretty sure that was the in joke there and yet, like, it really did just kick off this huge career. Because in 1982, he does the TV show Police Squad, which stalled out after one season, but was the, uh, you know, the birth point for the Naked Gun. Because, you know, the, the Zuckers and Abraham team were so into what they were doing with Police Squad, they decided to turn it into a movie, which kicked off that Naked Gun trilogy. And, like... Criminally underrated TV show. I've never seen it. Mate, if you like the Naked Gun films, it's like six extra Naked Gun films, except they're a bit shorter and there's less money. I'm still waiting for my VHS tape to show up in the mail. <laughs> <laughs> that's the problem. You're looking, waiting for Betamax, I think. That's, uh, that's, that's where this all got lost in the mail. <laughs> so, like, I was looking at a list of, like, how many of these movies uh, Leslie Nielsen made. It's a ton. And what a, like, boom for a career as you're kind of reaching those later stages where a lot of times you know your career kind of disappears to a certain degree but like he really had this run like i'll just list some of them off so this is post police squad naked gun repossessed naked gun two and a half naked gun 33 and a third dracula dead and loving it wrongfully accused 2001 a space travesty Scary Movie 3, Scary Movie 4, Superhero Movie, An American Carol, Stan Helsing, Spanish Movie. Like, that is one heck of a run. It's like the inverse of Liam Neeson's later career. But a similar diminishing returns aspect. Perhaps. I actually, like, this is what I find really interesting about Leslie Nielsen. Maybe now's a good time to say it. Because for me, he, I saw all of his films around the same time. Right. Like, I wasn't watching in the 80s when these films came out. I was, you know, when this film came out, I was nine. So I, I, hadn't, I didn't really watch Spy Hard at the time. But I watched his films, along with the Naked Gun films, around about the same time, along with Airplane. And then, you know, around the time I'd be watching Scary Movie 3. It was just like a continuum of Leslie Nielsen. I didn't really chart the actual historical accuracy of when these films came out. 
Dracula then loving it. Another good one I really enjoyed. Right. Um, and so I, I, I don't see this like, cause it's actually weird because it, there's this boom in the 80s and it kind of dies down a bit in the 90s. And then he has a little resurgence again with the scary movie three and four and some more of these Freeberg films, as, as it were. Um, so I never really noticed a sort of a drop off there, but that's really what I know him for. It's only later in life I learned that he, the whole, the whole joke of it is that he spent 20, 30 years being this straight actor. Yeah. And then he's letting his hair down. For me, it was just a comedy guy. I watched an interview with him actually from the Spy Hard um, press tour. And he was talking about his career now. And just as he's having the time of his life and he has so much fun making these movies. And, you know, they asked him, like, why did it take so long to, for him to kind of stumble upon this? And he said he just couldn't see the comedy. Like, he didn't understand why he was funny or like how this could work so well and for about 30 years he said it was like this slowly dawning realization and he took himself very very seriously you know as a younger actor into his middle age and it wasn't until he got older they suddenly realized like this can be really funny well i think you also need to get to a certain age where you can play that elder statesman because most of these films he does he is still playing it straight he's usually a buffoon yeah he doesn't know he's being funny or being silly. And that's really what works. Like, especially in Airplane, he is being deadly serious. Oh, yeah. And that's what he said. It's like the key is the audience can never know that you are in on the joke. You have to play it mm. dead straight. And he, in this like little clip, he's even just talking about like the way he does like, you know, eye acting in these comedies and like how he has to be very aware of where the camera is and how just like the movement of his eyes can be what's really funny. But the camera has to be able to pick it up. And so he's constantly having to think about that in his performance. Like he does a really, it's the the interview starts off kind of jokey of him just kind of, you know, riffing his way through a 10 minute interview. But he does actually at a certain point start to actually break down technically how challenging it is to make these movies. I absolutely believe there's a craft behind this because there's good and bad spoof films. Oh yeah, definitely. But please continue. And in terms of the production, I'm going to let Rick Friedberg talk about all of that because there was some, you know, definite hiccups throughout the production of Spy Hard, both with um, Disney as well as just some, you know, back and forth, I think, between him and Nielsen that were, you know, just made the process a little more complicated. But I will just note um, the opening, which we talked about, the Weird Al sequence, was directed by Weird Al. He had started directing his own music videos in the 80s. And he actually directed this sequence the same year he released his video for Amish Paradise, which was a huge deal. That explains the outfit. It does, yes. And he directed that video as well. So Weird Al was definitely a very talented um, director you know, of music videos. And so this was a real get. And I don't know that people realized that he directed his own videos a lot of the time. I, I didn't know that. Um, it's, it's certainly one of the more standout moments of this film. Definitely, yeah. It's the one that I think people remember. Yeah, I remember the song more than the film, which is all him and his creation. Yeah. So the budget for Spy Hard was $18 million. Domestically, it made $27 million, And I have no international numbers. I know it was released internationally. I looked at all the release dates, but that information, for some reason, is not available. So I was left with just a worldwide total of $27 million. That's all I've got. So when I, I put a post up online about this film that I was watching it, I had a lot of people comment in the UK that they were familiar with this film. Yeah. I But I almost feel like that's home release. Okay. Um, I, I could reach out to some friends and find out about 
if it was busy or not, I suppose. I, you know, we have quite a few people who were definitely watching films around this time in the in the theaters. But I don't know. I I always worry if there's no information about the box office. I tend to think it didn't do well. Well, I mean, comedy doesn't generally translate a lot of the time, and so they tend to. For example, that same summer, they've got Mission Impossible, they've got Independence Day. Those are the movies they'd be pushing, I think, more internationally because they that would same just, day. Yeah, oh no, kidding. Because they would know that that's going to bring in money. You're going to be able to like open those films throughout the world, and they're going to translate fairly well. Whereas with comedy, that's often not the case. So they tend to put less effort in sending North American, you know, comedies overseas, unless it's something. I think like the Austin Powers stuff did quite well. I, I, I think it did. That, well, that had two sequels, so I think it did quite well for itself. Yeah. The same, I think the Johnny Englishes did okay. But then didn't... If comedies don't translate, how do things like the Naked Gun sequels get made? How do, and, you know, how do things like Airplane do? Because that had a sequel as well. Well, I mean, in those days, studios just didn't care about international money that much. It was kind of like a bonus thing, but they focused so much on domestic, and those movies were incredibly profitable domestically. Fair enough. Yeah, so it was number 57 for the year between The Island of Dr. Moreau and Eye for an Eye. Uh, two movies that one's remembered for very bad reasons and one's completely forgotten. Dare I ask what those reasons were and which film that you're talking about? Island of Dr. Moreau was like just a complete train wreck production that uh, yeah is now referred to in terms where they just kind of ridicule bad movies. Like Waterworld bad. Oh, no, no, it's way worse. Waterworld is actually fairly watchable, I would say, but like... No, not the film, but like the production was really bad for Waterworld. Oh, yeah, yeah. In terms of the production, yes, Dr. Moreau was like a Waterworld where it was just a disaster. For, uh, John Frankenheimer directed that one, who did Ronin. Oh. Um, but it was a case of switching out directors at points in the production. Marlon Brando running wild. Um, it was... It was uh, there's actually a documentary called Lost Souls about the making of it that's just fascinating. <laughs> Just fascinating. I feel like I want to go watch that now instead of talking about Spy Hard. It's worth watching. It's very entertaining. But uh, Eye for an Eye was a Sally Field film about a uh, it's like vigilante case of a woman who avenges, I think, crime against her daughter or something. I did see it. It was very forgettable. Um, but as I said, this movie opened the same weekend as Mission Impossible, a perhaps questionable choice. The top three for that year, number one was Independence Day. Number two was Twister, and number three was Mission Impossible. So the three movies of that summer dominated the year. There was nothing really waiting to beat them, you know, in the fall. It's such a... I mean, I almost appreciate the, uh, the chutzpah it takes to put that film out at the same time as Mission Impossible. There's 52 weeks in a year, 365 days. You could pick any of those days and any of those weeks, but no, you're going to rub shoulders with Tom Cruise rebooting a beloved spy franchise with your own spy comedy film. Jeez. I wonder if they just thought that, like, Mission Impossible would skew a little older and they want to, like, pull in kids with Spy Hard. Is this a kid's film? Yes. I mean, of, of course it is. We were watching it when we were teens. That doesn't mean it was a kid's film. I was watching some pretty bad films when I was a teenager. I think 12-year-olds and what have you would have totally been drawn to Spy Hard. Explains why you loved it so much. That's right. That's right. Um, and so, you know, as I said, the movie was like, yeah, it kind of broke even. It was probably okay, but not a hit. And I had some post-film uh, stuff. So in 2012, Marsha Gay Harden did an interview with AV Club 
for their random roles series where they go through and just call out actors, you know, past work, like very obscure roles they've done and get, you know, blurbs about it. And they asked her about this movie. She said, ugh, I hated doing that movie. It was, I thought, going to be an opportunity to have a lot of fun, but it was just chaos and uh, not so much fun and not so funny. I mean, Leslie was great, but it was really his show and it was just very chaotic. Behind schedule, over budget, people mention her to me, referring to the character she plays, Mm -hmm. but I've never seen the movie. All I know is that she was supposed to be sexy and I don't know if she even was. yeah, I, I, I get her a take on it, absolutely. The character's name is Miss Cheevas, which I think yeah. is a genius uh, pun. But, okay, that, that's fair. Any any other blurbs on it? Yeah, just that on that press tour, Leslie Nielsen announced that when he died, he was going to have his gravestone say, let her rip. And he held true to that. That is on his wow. gravestone now. What's that a reference to? Was it just he wanted it on there? I don't know, because he used to carry around that portable fart machine everywhere. Right. And so, let her rip. I mean, I think that may be a reference to that. Wow. Okay. (laughs) Is that that all you have for us, Cam? That is a perfect way. Let her rip, Scott. Let her rip. Let her rip. Yeah, let's let's talk about it. Well, um, let's fart into the couch a bit more and talk about Spy Hard. (laughs) Subtle. Very subtle. Yeah. It's 100 films. I haven't got to be subtle anymore. It's true. If, if if you're on this train, you know where the destination is. By the way, I have a corrective I want to just quickly issue as to the beta versus VHS thing. I was mixing up beta with PAL format. So the formatting of the VHS tapes. Yeah, yeah. Well, of course, you have NTSC and we have PAL. Yeah, that was what I was getting mixed up on. So anyways. Well, you didn't win. Did you need to come back with that? You didn't win that battle. If anything, it you look stupid. Matter. I don't care. I needed to. I need to get the actual facts across. Okay. Well, I hope. I hope that was worth everyone's thirty seconds you just wasted. <laughs> I'll just spy hard. <laughs> well, maybe we should go back to Betamax. Um, <laughs> spy hard. Cam, I really wanted to like this film. Uh huh. I really wanted to like this film. I didn't. Yeah. I just didn't. There's like. There's some good jokes in there. There's there's things that got laughs out of me. I wasn't sitting there dumbfounded for eighty minutes. But what I was sitting there is just confused as to how it was, how you had this caliber of actor in terms of Leslie Nielsen, this concept in terms of having a spy spoof, because it's proven to work, worked in the 60s, works with Austin Powers, it can work. And you just bungle it. It genuinely becomes unfunny by the end. And somehow I got lost in an 80 minute film. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that Friedberg had worked with Leslie Nielsen on those golf videos, which I think are like 45 minutes long. Because to me, this feels like something that strains past about the 45-minute mark. Like, it, yeah. it's 81 minutes, I think, but that's, you know, with credits. It's like 77 minutes or something like that. And you feel that length by the end. <laughs> 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 Keeping it classy on 100. Spy hard, eh? Yeah, it's it's confusing in the sense of, like I said, you've got this caliber, this concept, there should be something more here. But by the sort of 40-minute mark, I think that's probably a good uh, place to put the flag in. It just feels like it's either repeating its own gags or it's redundant. It doesn't need to do it anymore. The, and we said earlier on, 
the plot isn't really important in these films. It is just, as Cam said, a clothesline to hang gags off of. You know, and the gags stop being funny at some point. The the first, like, maybe 10, 15 minutes of this, I think is actually a really good film. Like, you got the intro sequence where, you know, the the bad guy, General Rancor, great bad guy name, obviously taking Star Wars, um, you know, is presumably killed, and turns out he isn't. And you get to meet Agent WD-40, and you get a great scene with Mr. T flying a helicopter, and he's like, I'm ready for action. And opens a suitcase, and the top secret documents come flying out, and you get a Mission Impossible riff with his thing self-exploding. Funny, funny, funny. Did you catch the voice doing the, you know, this this message will self-destruct? Did you hear who that was? I didn't hear who it was. It was Alex Trebek. That's an American thing that I don't really know. Oh, yeah, I guess. I didn't think about that. Yeah, he was the host of Jeopardy, the beloved host of Jeopardy, who passed away just not too long ago, really. Okay. Oh, yeah, because it, didn't it say we're entering the double Jeopardy round of something or other? Correct, yeah. Okay. I heard that, but I, did, I don't know what Alex Trebek sounds like. Sorry, Americans and North Americans, I don't know the chap, but I'm sure he was much beloved. Um, but yeah, that whole bit at the start, and then you've got the great sort of Thunderball riff uh, spy hard song with Weird Al knocking it out of the park as he likes to do. And even like some of the setup stuff at the beginning after that is is quite fun. You get some like eccentric characters like Barry Boswick's Norman Coleman, who I don't know where he got his accent from. I love Barry Boswick in the Rocky Horror Picture Show, but like, good God, man, <laughs> what are you doing, Dick? Dick Steele. Like, that accent, he is, he is playing for the back of the theater. And that stuff's funny for about five minutes yeah and then i just sit there going i'm not getting anything from this film and for an 80 minute film to lose my concentration it's it's got to be a a reflection on what was going on behind the camera yeah the bostwick stuff like it's a funny exit but i'm also like questioning in the timeline was this being used after that Simpsons episode with, you know, Mayor Quimby's uh, nephew, who's like doing the say chowda, say chowda, you know, the whole like JFK riff stuff was already being done on the Simpsons through Mayor Quimby. So like, I don't know that this would have been that original when I would have seen it in 1996. I would have been like, oh, okay, it's like Mayor Quimby. But like, Bostwick commits. But like, there's like, plot stuff that happens at a certain point in the movie where they're like padding out the runtime with him like vying for taking over the mission and I'm just like this is like plot based stuff that does not matter yeah you've got like the the director played by Charles Durning doing this uh, sort of disguise gimmick that I'm sure I've seen in something else I cannot put my finger on Was it, oh, wasn't there a character in Naked Gun who did that maybe that's what it was it's, I feel like there was definitely someone who like disguised themselves, like a boss person who disguised themselves in their office. And throughout the like film or TV show, the joke was they had to find them. I'll have to go and look this up, but it, it bugged me the entire time. And in the time between now and doing this episode, I couldn't find the reference. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. And I'm like, was it just like one of the officers in Naked Gun where they would Hot like shots, reference maybe them? or something? Oh, maybe Hot Shots? Yeah. Um, boy, I'll have to do a deep dive on spoofs of the 80s and 90s to dig up where that may have come from. If you're screaming, if you're screaming at your computer or at your phone whilst I'm saying this, I'm sorry, please let me know. I've probably already found it by the time you're sending me a message, but please call me an idiot because I am. 
But, you know, back to Spy Hard itself. It bugs me that it could have been better. And I think that's what winds me up about it because I've seen Leslie Nielsen be better in films. And don't get me wrong. Leslie Nielsen is a comic genius. Yeah. He understands the jokes that he is delivering and he is great at delivering them. But the film around him is falling apart as we slowly watch it go. Well, like the concept of Leslie Nielsen as a James Bond, you know, figure is hilarious just right there. As a pitch, mm-hmm. that is absolutely genius. And to like dress that up with, you know, a weird owl theme and all that sort of stuff, it really is like a recipe for something that's very cool and very funny. Like it could have been because like, you know, a couple years later we would be inundated with Bond spoofs. Austin Powers is one year away. Um, and then, of course, the Johnny English stuff is going to roll around and Grimsby and all these sorts of things. But, like, Spy Hard really kind of had a little bit of an advantage of being one of the earlier ones out of the gate. There was probably stuff, you know, previous that spoofed Bond. I mean, we have all the 60s spy spoofs. But, like, in kind of that resurgence in the spoof period of the 90s, this one could have been ahead of the pack. And, like, for me, I guess I'll give my thoughts. Like, Spy Hard is a weird one and that, like... Like you, there's stuff in it I found fun. The budget for the movie, you know, the $18 million budget is very apparent when you rewatch it. I don't know that it jumped out to me at all when I watched on VHS back in, uh, you know, 1996 or 7. But like um, watching it, you know, the other night on Disney Plus, I was like, oh my God, this looks really low budget. Like this looks looks like a TV movie. Yeah, it it often looks like a TV movie or like a straight to video movie or something. Sure. Um, The mail order ones, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yes. All mail order all the time. And so like, um, I found that like kind of a little bit distracting, but like, it's not, this is a movie called Spy Hard and it does have its Bond spoof elements, but it's also this kind of grab bag of like, here are spy spoof stuff. Here are like just constant references to the 1990s film world. And some of those references have held you know the test of time like we still know what they are there are some that are just completely lost or feel like oh man that is really obscure now to be referencing and that's maybe the issue of like spoofing stuff that's happening right in that specific moment Mm -hmm. because like a lot of the plot of this movie is based around in the line of fire which is a terrific movie i have nothing bad to say about it we'll do it on the show at some point but like that clint eastwood film is not in like the pop culture sphere anymore you don't have it sort of in you know, the mainstream talking points. Like, it's just a film that is really solid, really good. I recommend people check it out, but is not one that's held up to the point where you could show this movie now and people instantly connect to In the Line of Fire. Um, The True Lies stuff, there's a lot of that in as well. And True Lies was a big hit in 94. It makes a lot of sense, but True Lies has never been released on Blu-ray. There is no, you know, 4K version out there. So it's another movie that's, I think... People my age all know True Lies really well, but generations after that, not as much, not as much. It's also barely available on streaming as well. Exactly. Like it, it, it is one of the, it's becoming a bit of lost media. Exactly. And so it's like, in terms of like the of the moment stuff, I find myself less into that. I think like the movie has a really weird issue where sometimes its spoof points are really on the mark i think the weird owl stuff which i'm sure we're going to mention a billion times more because it's so terrific is so on the mark and the fact that like his head explodes at the end of that is you know this little nod to tom jones like you know allegedly passing out doing the thunderball note 
Like that is like an insightful level of comedy that works completely a slapstick. You know, you don't have to have ever seen a Bond movie to find that funny. But if you're a Bond fan, it has genuine kind of extra value knowing that behind the scenes little tidbit about Tom Jones. But a lot of this movie does this thing that would become very common in spoofs of the 2000s, which is we're just making the reference. So like there's moments where it's like Leslie Nielsen and Nicolette Sheridan in a club and they're like, oh, we've got some time. What should we do? Smash cut to them just doing the Pulp Fiction dance in, you know, John Travolta and Uma Thurman, you know, makeup and, you know, hair and all that sort of stuff. And it's like, okay. So, like, it's a weird scattershot movie where I'm like, into some of the more clever stuff, Leslie Nielsen is always fun. But I find, like, a lot of the here's a reference stuff is not really my bag. It doesn't land for me either. It's actually that the movie references and the celebrity cameos. Yeah both land on my sort of dislikes column. Okay, it's nice to see Mr. T. Okay, it's interesting to see, you know, Ray Charles driving a bus. There's a, I suppose, a built-in joke there, although it's mentioned several times. They really do, you know, ride that one. But do they hold it? Like, do people know who Fabio is anymore? Well, and that's that so, like, we are spoofing this specific moment in 1990s culture. Because you also have, like, Alexandra Paul, who was on Baywatch at the time, playing, you know, this woman who Leslie Nielsen, it's like the first, I guess, like, woman we see him in bed with in the movie. And then she pulls out a gun. He launches the bed back into the wall. Um, She was, like, yeah, known for Baywatch. You've got Eddie Deason who I feel like people don't know who he is anymore at all. He was in Greece, and there's a scene where like he gets you know spat on and makes a joke about spitting image or something like that. Oh, that's and... what that is? Yeah. Oh, that went over my head. Oh, it's long... Eddie Deason has actually had legal problems lately, so I'm more aware of as to who he is just seeing these kind of stories pop up. But uh, yeah, I, I think he may have some mental health issues these days, it seems, from what's going on with Eddie Deason. But like when his cameo jumped out i went um oh well that's odd and i don't know that i would have spotted that in 1996 i don't even know if i would have made a grease connection back then no and and you said this is is for kids kids wouldn't get these references would a kid get a fabio reference i mean does the fabio reference mean anything it was a pretty guy and that's why she was staring i guess you could you know wash it away with that but i don't know and I, i'm always reminded of um I don't know if it was a, a Gene Roddenberry edict, and I know Scott's talking about Star Trek again. Sorry, everyone. But there was always this edict of not making contemporary sort of comments or jokes or playing contemporary music on Star Trek for a very long time because it really sets it in a time and place. And that sort of changed around Star Trek Enterprise coming out and then the newer shows, you know, you've got Wycliffe Jean playing. But, you know, it, it dates it. Right. It dates it to exactly when that comes out. Now, this film is exactly 1996. You couldn't be more 1990, 1996 than Spy Hard. Um, no, that's true. I will defend maybe the Fabio spot just because he was on those commercials for I Can't Believe It's Not Butter. So if you were a kid watching TV, you would have been seeing those commercials like endlessly. So I do think he had a presence that people might recognize. It's a shame they didn't throw a bird in his face. Oh, man, remember that? What a weird story that was. Uh, that That is my only Fabio story that sticks in my mind. Yeah. yeah. And then you've got Hulk Hogan, but the less said about that guy, the better. The celeb cameos are interesting in that, like, I think Ray Charles was probably the only one that worked for me. I thought, like, that was kind of a fun gimmick was to have him driving the bus from speed. 
Um, and he just seems to be having a great time. He's like legitimately funny. Yeah, he he seems to be having a blast. Um, I I I guess you know he wants to be in the film. Sure, uh, maybe he's a fan. I, I don't know how you could be a fan of films. Maybe I don't know. I don't really get that, but sure, he wants to. Maybe he's doing a favor for someone. Sure. Um, the one that I think just goes over the head of anyone now is Doctor Joyce Brothers. I don't know what that is. <laughs> she was like a sex therapist who was kind of like a media personality. She would do a lot of talk shows and stuff. She shows up at the end in the scene with Hulk Hogan. She's also doing some of the fighting. Oh. Is that like Jerry Springer showing up? No, no. She was like an actual work, you know, professional. Um, but she Trust just was Cam someone... to uh, know who the sex therapist is. <laughs> I only know because she um, had a cameo on The Simpsons. And I remember looking it up because I didn't know who she was. She had a really funny line on that where she says, I brought my own mic. <laughs> and like, <laughs> that always made me laugh as a kid. But uh, what, a way, what a way to be remembered. She was someone who was like, um, I think like fairly legit, had written books and whatever, but became a bit of a media personality just because she was really good on talk shows and stuff like that. Fair enough. Well, I, I do want to tip my hat. I did a little bit to Leslie Nielsen. I think he is doing his best throughout the 80 minutes to try and sell this film. I also want to tip my hat to Nicolette Sheridan. You can say the accent is questionable. I don't think it's any more questionable than Barry Boswick's accent. <laughs> but she is fully committed to this character. And she throws herself into the comedy, too. Literally, in some scenes, you know, pratfalls aplenty. She's also a riot in this film. I haven't really seen Nicolette Sheridan in much else. But in this, she was great. I was not a Desperate Housewives watcher, so I've never seen a single episode. I am a Desperate Housewife, but... That's about mm. it. Fair enough. Yeah, I agree. Like, there's a commitment that those two bring that I think really works. Like, they have that so nailed down of the don't allow people to see that you're in on the joke and just look like an idiot throughout. And Leslie Nielsen, I mean, at this point in 1996, he could do that in his sleep because this is after all the Naked Gun movies. Like, this is just his bread and butter, not to make a Fabio reference. Um, and you should have <laughs> said you, bird you. and butter or something. <laughs> I know, I know. But Nicolette Sheridan was like, you know, newer onto the scene and really pulls this off very well. Like right from her dorky introduction where you see the giant legs. Yeah. And it's like panning up and it turns out to be a statue and then pans back down and she's there. And then like turns and does a total pratfall walking away. She's committed and she's consistently funny and in on the joke. It's weird how you'll see like people like that who so get it and are able to sell it. But then like, you know, You've got Andy Griffith in the movie as the villain General Rancor, who, like, Andy Griffith is, like, a legendary talent in, you know, TV and just doesn't seem to know how to play this stuff very well. He's going for more, like, the campy Roger Moore film villain, I would yeah. say. Um, I'm not quite sure what Leslie Nielsen's going for in terms of his... If it's, if it's a Bond, he's going for. Uh, I will just say Nicolette Sheridan will be making another appearance in Codename the Cleaner at some point on the show. She has another spy film. But it is oh, interesting. That's, yeah. that's number 200. <laughs> okay. Look forward to that, guys, if you're still here. If we haven't scared you off already. Um, no, but I just just to touch on Nicolette Sheridan just one more time. I, you know, I could see actors being very self-conscious about these kinds of films. Especially if you know if you want to portray a certain image. And this is the opposite of that because you really don't, you really can't take yourself seriously and play a lead in a film like this. And kudos to her for really leaning into it. Yeah. And I mean, she's had a fairly long career. So, you know, props to her for 
I would imagine, though, at like the time, if you are a young, you know, attractive actress who's earlier in your career, you would have agents saying, don't do this movie. Mm-hmm. Like it would just be like, ooh, like don't you're going to get pigeonholed into these types of roles. But it worked out for her because I think she's really good in this movie. Well, I mean, one thing that I'll spoil about our interview later in the week with Rick, the director, is you know he says that Nicolette is a massive fan of Leslie. And so she jumped at the opportunity to work with him. It's very much a Barbara Carrera and Sean Connery situation. If you remember back to when we did Never Say Never Again, Barbara Carrera turned down the role in Octopussy to be in Never Say Never Again to work with Sean Connery. It meant that much to her. Um, and I, I can see that connection, perhaps. And Marsha Gay Harden, it seems in her anecdote there, you know, at the AV Club, what got her on board was Leslie Nielsen, the idea of being in one of his movies. I wonder, maybe I should be looking at this more from the frame of where Leslie Nielsen was versus the idea of appearing in a spoof movie. Because if, you know, you look at those three naked guns, those were all big hits. So maybe it was like, well, the latest Leslie Nielsen spoof movie is going to be a big hit. You want to be in on this. So maybe it was like... When did The Last Naked Gun come out? 94. So this would have, that would have been two years before Spy Hard. Oh, so this is very, very close. To it. In my head, the Naked Gun films are 80s films. The first one is late 80s. Yeah, sure. Okay. Well, then I can see it. The other person, I, I, it, he's in my likes column. I think we'll move on to dislikes in a second. Is John Ailes as Kabul. The jokes are hit and miss. Um, it's very much like a lounge act comedy in a sense, but sometimes he is quite hilarious. Do you just like him because of the Star Trek connection? There's a Star Trek connection? He played Bruce Maddox in uh, Star Trek Picard. <laughs> I didn't know that. Scott's mind is just blown. <laughs> I now, I'm going to swear, I now fucking hate this film. <laughs> He is also on Euphoria, the acclaimed show. So uh, his career is doing just fine these days. But he's committed. I didn't find the character of Kabul particularly funny. So, like, I give props to the actor for consistently trying to sell it. Like, he, like Sheridan and Nielsen, is committed to the bit, no matter what. I found Star Trek Picard particularly funny. (laughs) It's tragic. Uh, (laughs) Um, um, Any likes that I haven't mentioned you've got, Cam? You know, I thought Charles Durning was fun. He's in his own movie. Like, a lot of the jokes is just Charles Durning putting on these disguises in his office. But, like, I often found them kind of funny watching him wearing these, like, just ridiculous get-ups. The part where he is the door-slash-window and is, like, going across the room to, like, blend into the scenery, I thought, like, it's in some ways time filler. It's just kind of gags being inserted. But, like... I don't know what I'm really expecting from these types of movies. Of course, you're going to have scenes like that. But um, I thought he pulled it off. Like, I thought Charles Durning had a similar Leslie Nielsen energy where he never gives across that, you know, it's a joke. And Charles Durning has, like, a legendary career at this point. You know, he's been a long-working character actor. And so I thought he was pretty funny, actually. He was a bit hit and miss for me, I have to say. The uh, the gimmick of being sort of disguised was funny, but never really explored or explained. So it was just kind of a an amusing aside. Right. But it was all just like filler. All of his scenes were filler. Um, well, I, I'm going to take us over to the dislikes. And I've got one big one I need to ask you, because you and I have both watched this film twice recently. It's a grand total of four watches between us. Correct. Marcia Gay Harden is, of course, playing the Miss Moneypenny type. 
mischievous. You know, I, I think there's a lot of legs with that joke. You could have done a lot with that. I don't think it really does a lot with that. Why is she captured at the end? And at what point does she get captured? Because I tried to track this and I do not remember her ever being captured. I'm wondering if something was cut or also like, I don't know, in those types of spy or spoof movies, they often just like cut corners. So things just kind of happen just to speed it along. Um, I have no idea. This was almost 80 minutes. That's true. They could have have put a minute in. (laughs) They could have cut it down more, Scott. They could have cut it down more. Um, I don't know. There must have been a deleted scene or something somewhere. Look out for the, uh, what would it be? 25th anniversary in a few years time? Yeah, no kidding. It it feels ridiculous to be like talking about character motivations and what have you because like they're kind of irrelevant in this type of movie anyway. Um, but what's going on with Mischievous is confusing. Um, the fact that she apparently was like, you know, a mole working for General Rancor. Generally, I feel like you would want to turn that into a joke or something, and it doesn't. It just kind of conveys it as quick exposition. Mm. Um, later in the movie, so like that's why I wonder if there was just scenes being cut or something. Yeah, because if she was a mole, why was she in the cage? Like I don't. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. Anyway, we interrupt this program to bring you a special report. Calling all agents! Independent podcasting, much like the spy game, requires considerable resources. Whether it's research, equipment, hosting. Or, of course, constructing a top-secret volcano lair, we're putting out the call for your support. That's right. As you may know, we've activated the Spy Hearts Patreon, home of our ever-growing lineup of Agents in the Field episodes where we decode non-spy films from your favorite spy actors and full film commentaries with more intel than a Basil Exposition briefing. Cam, what have we got in our crosshairs this month? Well, Leslie Nielsen may be the ultimate badass, but we're going to tackle the penultimate badass, Liam Neeson, with a full-length commentary on Taken. Get ready for some major dad action. And if that sounds delicious, then become a true spy hard today and join the circus at patreon.com slash spyhards. But before this message self-destructs, Cam, resume the spy jinx. Dislikes. I mean, we mentioned it looking cheap. I think that's that's already something against the film. Uh, it's a surprise, really. Um, we also mentioned the fact that it really loses all momentum by the midway point. Um, the other thing I would say that I would maybe jump on just to, to really dial into is I understand from our chat later on this week that there was a lot of studio mandates when it comes to things like the film references and the cameos so i i find it hard to hold it against the film but boy does it detract um it 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 just wastes time and i just think this film barely makes 80 minutes if you took all of that stuff away what do you have and it's a type of spoof movie that like there was an evolution of these right because when you look at like naked gun they will have little parodies in there they will have moments and asides but like they tend to be grafted onto a pretty sturdy plot, like a cliched plot. Like they want it to be the tropes and kind of these standard plots you understand, right? Um, whereas like with Spy Hard, the general plot, it's drawing it from both Bond and In the Line of Fire. There's a little bit of true lies in there. But like, I don't, they probably would have been smarter, I think, to just gr- take a very specific Bond type plot 
and just run with that and then work their gags organically into that because like a lot of the the little asides and stuff a lot of the spoofs in this movie are things that have nothing to do with spy movies whatsoever absolutely nothing well no you take like the the mcclucky character yeah it's meant to be uh well kevin McAllister is the name connection but it's actually played by macaulay culkin yeah i guess that's just sort of a combination of the two um that why is there a home alone spoof in the film for a good five minutes and you know why is there jokes about oh this is for my girl and this is for my girl too what and the kid who plays that role mason gamble he played um the lead in dennis the menace so it was like, like I wonder if they offered it to Macaulay Culkin even. And he was like, there is no way in hell I am doing this movie. And so they got the kid from uh, Dennis the Menace. But yeah, I. it turns into like 1990s the movie where you've got like, yeah, Home Alone and True Lies. And at least True Lies is a spy movie. But the Pulp Fiction moment, which I reference, you've also got references to Goodfellas with the club they are, you know keep trying to go to. Um, it turns into like 1990s pop culture, the movie. And it's like when you're doing those two things, the spy centric stuff and the 90s stuff, it makes it feel scattered. It doesn't feel like it's focused. And I wonder mm. if like they should have been looking more. And I know the Weird Al thing was not in the plans right from the get go. That came later. But like that's the sort of thing you want to focus on and say, hey, that is a strength. Let's build a specific spy spoof because. Is it a spy spoof? Well, you've even got like Bill Conti, you know, movie composer legend Bill Conti, who has scored Bond films, making a very close to Bond sounding score for this film. Actually, it's not a bad score, but they they they're leaning into it. He riffs off the True Lies music really well too. Wow, I, I didn't pick up on that, but there you go, like. They, I think they knew what they were trying to do, but maybe they just couldn't deliver it. Because this was obviously pitched by Rick's son and his friend as a spy spoof. They wanted to spoof on James Bond. You've got to think, Goldeneye came out the year before. This is the, this is the re-emergence of Bond. This is the perfect time to be dropping this film. And maybe that's why it didn't do that very well, because it, it didn't do that very well. It didn't really riff off of anything. And the Friedberg style of spoofing, which Rick Friedberg, the director, you know, co-writer, he doesn't make any more of these movies, but his, you know, son and Aaron Seltzer go on to make a whole bunch. That was their approach, was to basically take sort of loose frameworks of movies, you know, they were spoofing. So whether it was like date movie, which is romantic comedies, or epic movie, which is like blockbusters, but then just like throw in all these references from the specific time in which those movies were being shot. I remember there was like... I don't remember what movie it was. I never saw any of them after date movie. But like um there was like a part where it was like two characters and then like they go, "Hey, look, Iron Man." And then a cow fell on Iron Man. And it's like the joke is, well, Iron Man came out like a year ago and was really popular. Huh. Yeah, like it's a type of spoof that I just don't like. And those movies no. were critically reviled. They always made year-end worst of lists. After date movie, I was out. I just did not enjoy that movie at all. I think I think some of them are on like the bottom 100 on IMDb. Like, yeah, yeah, critically reviled is probably the correct term. And and it, I mean, I think I saw some of the scary movies, but not all of them. I think I definitely saw the third one. So I saw Leslie Nielsen in scary movies. But uh, yeah, I not, saw the first three. 
yeah, I, uh, that that's about where I, I think the third one was like a signs riff, wasn't it? Yes, I, the scary movies were a little different in that they were focused on what they wanted to do. You know, the first one is very much a you know riff on Scream. Scream. Yeah, the second one picked a poor target in doing the haunting that now forgotten Liam Neeson, um, you know, supernatural thriller. But then, the, like the third one was, yeah, doing signs and things like that. I didn't see the fourth one, but um, no. they tended to pick their targets fairly smartly. And look, it was not Young Frankenstein level of you know parody, but at least it had its specific target. Whereas, like, if I were to ask you right now, what is Spy Hard spoofing? What would you say? I'd guess Bond films. Yeah. I, I mean Bond tropes. Like I, I kept a list. I kept a list of like the tropes it referenced or or went near. Like, he, I mean, not just I mean Bond tropes, necessary spy tropes. But you had like the Mission Impossible, self-destruct in five seconds. You had the title sequence. You've got Agent WD forty, which is obviously a 007 riff. Uh, you've got like a Q. Sorry, not a Q. Oh yeah, like a Q character. I forget. I think Noggin. Yep. Um, there's obviously the sort of Blofeld esque villain that gets killed and comes back again. Um, he's also got a secret lair. So there's there's a, quite a few tropes it plays with, but that's it. That's all. It, it is almost lip service, you would say. There is also one reference this film makes that I have both a like and dislike down about. Okay. And you might know where I'm going. And that is Talisa Soto. Right. Yeah. So you have Talisa Soto in this film, who, for those of you who don't know, she was in Licence to Kill uh, as uh, Lupe Lamora, a Bond girl, basically second to Carrie Lowell in the film. Um, and she makes an appearance, and this is sort of a femme fatale that Agent WD-40 is sent to meet and ends up trying to kill him. And the first moment is kind of fun. I mean, I guess she's, she's, she's playing to type. She's a Bond girl. They're doing it for that. I guess it's for that reference. That's why she's here. The fact that she can hear his voiceover is genius. I thought that was actually a really funny gag. That was funny, yeah. Um, but like that, and then it goes straight to something that happens a year later in Tomorrow Never Dies. Uh huh. Yeah, where um, they do a little kung fu fighting and start making some very uh, choice noises. You can go and look up uh, what Jonathan Price does in Tomorrow Never Dies when he does a little bit of fighting uh, with Wei Lin perhaps a bit problematic and um i wrote down that's no gouda in terms of that uh yeah that's a bit icky so popular at the time though even like i remember wayne's world 2 did that as well it was just like this huge trend of like mimicking um old martial arts films and uh has not aged well no sir lovely to see talisa that's the like the delivery of the kung fu fight afterwards that's a big dislike for me. Yeah, there's some uh, icky racial stuff now because you also have like rancors, um, like henchmen are you know black actors wearing tribal makeup and stuff like that. And it's like I don't know what's going on here, and I don't want to know what's going on here. And you've also got Leslie Nielsen, you know, putting some sort of tribal war paint on as well. Um, yeah, some people could take issue with that. Um, we're not here to pick that bit apart. I just the Talisa Soto did kind of wind me up. It was lovely to see her again in another spy movie. We haven't done License to Kill on the show yet, but if you're going to get her in, if you're going to get a bona fide Bond girl in, do something interesting with her. Well, and that's the thing. It's like they did more with Alexandra Paul. I felt like, um, you know, showing up as like the the love interest who's in the bed that goes into the wall. Like I thought she got a funnier gag 
than Talisa Soto did. And if you're going to have, as you said, like a Bond girl in your movie, that should be like a centerpiece scene. Like that should be like one of your big moments, especially like have a reveal, but they really don't do that much with it. Like a, a proper Sophia Loren in Operation Crossbow. I wonder if it was because like they probably, I would have to guess, went out to, I, I can't remember. We talked to Rick Friedberg about this, so I may have just forgotten, but they, I don't think, had they gone out to any other Bond girls? For cameos? I don't think so. I I can't remember what we said or if we asked, to be honest with you. I know we did talk about Talisa. Yeah. So we did talk about that in the episode. I don't know if we ever talked about like if there were any other options. I think I did ask, but I mean... I mean, technically speaking, when this film was being made, Goldeneye probably wasn't out yet. So the most no, recent no. Bond film was Licensed to Kill. So she's actually quite a, a very uh, apt person to have. It, it Yeah, she is, but like that movie was not particularly successful. So I wonder Nor if it was... was Spy Hard. <laughs> but yeah, License to Kill was a real underperformer, especially in North America. And so I wonder if it was also like people may not even recognize her, like they don't even know the movie that well. I don't know. But uh, do you have any dislikes for us, Cam? I mean, I feel like we've kind of covered it, but there's some... The, the reference that I keep coming back to that, okay... If this movie wants to do, like, James Bond and 90s culture, have at it. Like, that, fine, it is what it is. But then it's like it has this extended Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid bit with him and his flashbacks to uh, Vanessa Dahl, where he's on the bicycle doing gags, and I'm like, who is this for? Like, this is a I movie... I didn't get that at all. Yeah, like, that's a, you know, a reference to, like, a 19... I think it's 69, 67 movie or something like that. It's a Paul Newman, Robert Redford film. And uh, that is a scene in the film with uh, Paul Newman and Catherine Ross that I'm like, I get this, but like, I wouldn't like who who got this in 1996? Maybe that was for the parents. It had to be for the parents because there's no way any of the kids would have been getting that reference. No, I didn't get it. And I'm not a kid anymore either. Yeah. Mm. Speaking of references, there's a lot of Jurassic Park stuff here as well because Jurassic Park was also made in the 1990s. I will say the budget is often very apparent. And look, comedy doesn't have to be expensive. Uh, a lot of really great comedies aren't that expensive at all. You know, I think of the movie Clerks is really funny. You know, shot on a shoestring. But like, I did actually kind of find it funny how fake the raptor looked. Like, I kind of appreciated that. <laughs> It's almost like they lent into the absurdity and was like, oh, this looks like trash. Let's just go with it. Yeah. So that kind of made me laugh. Did you notice? I did not notice this until I guess the third time I watched this movie that when Andy Griffith is strapped to the missile at the end, that the missile, like the head of the missile, is shaped like Jaws? No. It's shaped like the, like the Jaws poster. Like, you know, that angle of looking at the shark. I didn't picture that at all. No, I didn't get that. No. Huh. Yeah, check the tape, people. I mean, it 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 goes down a, a long list of references I didn't pick up on yeah. in this film. Uh, yeah. Interesting. I'll, I'll go find a photo and put it up and compare it online. Yeah. So, like, I think it's tough to come up with other dislikes because we've kind of touched on them all. But it is like, I find when a movie for me just doesn't work when it comes to comedy is when either it's a reference that the point is that it's a reference or in the cases you've referenced earlier, the celeb cameo appearance is there to be a celeb cameo. You know, you have mm. Pat Morita showing up, I guess as a gay waiter. 
I think. There's an inflection there uh, that's meant to lead you in that direction, I would say. Yeah, that's not how Pat Morita talks. So, but like the joke is it's Pat Morita. It's not like they gave him something really memorable to do. And that's the case for a lot of the celeb cameos in this movie. I, I don't think they're all vying to be on it. They're all just paycheck jobs. Yeah. Hulk Hogan at this point was in the middle of his very popular run in WCW. He didn't need to be there. He just took it as a paycheck, I guess. Yeah. Um, and you have like the whole sister act scene as well Ugh. with the nuns that I'm like, uh, okay. I, yeah, I get it. Sister act was a big hit. By this point, the film has completely derailed. Yeah. This is why I don't. This is why we don't do like step by step reviews of the films on this podcast. Because if we were doing Spy Hard, I think uh, the hair I have left would have been all pulled out. <laughs> I did notice though at the end of that, you know, there's the whole fight scene with the other nun, and Leslie Nielsen throws urine in her face, and I was reminded of Never Say Never Again, and I thought, you know what, this is further evidence as to why Never Say Never Again is not great. <laughs> Oh shush! How dare you? I w- if actually, know what you know what Cam? I would take the weird Al Yankovic title sequence over Thunderball. Oh, the film. That's dark. This is not how I want to celebrate 100. <laughs> With me and you fighting about Thunderball, this is exactly yeah. what I want to do. I do have actually one other dislike I want to mention. We talked about Talisa Soto, who spy icon showing up in this movie. Another spy icon shows up, Robert Culp, who was on the TV show I Spy, playing like a jerk passenger on a plane. And I'm like, once again, they did not write anything for this guy to do. No, uh, that's like a, it's almost like Blink and you'll miss it. He is there for about two minutes, but to what end? That literally is just to have a joke with an, any old actor it could have been. Yeah. And not even funny. And you get that like hand stretch thing. It's just, I, I, I also, here's a question. When uh, Leslie Nielsen's WD-40 does that to uh, Culp's character and traps his fingers in the, uh, the, the the seat table, is he supposed to be... Was that like an intentional move? Or was that just him being dumb and accidentally trapping the guy's hand? I thought that was that school of just obliviousness that uh, you know Leslie Nielsen characters typically trade in, where people get hurt and he doesn't even notice. Because there's also the bit where... like. Uh, actually, no, it's not him. It's Kabul, like, runs over a woman's foot in a car, and, like, her foot is flat, like a cartoon. I just thought it was, like, obliviousness. Right, because he's not playing... Leslie's not playing that oblivious character in this one. He's not playing that sort of naked gun, stumbles his way through it. He actually is very purposeful in his actions. I suppose, but doesn't he, like, knock over people and stuff like that cluelessly? I could just be Leslie. Could be, could be. I do it all the time. Uh, one final note I did have is you mentioned True Lies references. There's a pretty big True Lies reference in this, and that isn't just the horse in the elevator, which you see in True Lies, but the couple in the elevator with the horse is the same couple that was in True Lies. They got the uh, the stunt actors, I guess, back, or background actors back to do that little scene. I guess that's a fun nod. I mean, it really isn't for anyone apart from nerds like us. It probably would have played really well in 1996, though, because I would have seen True Lies a number of times at that point. Okay. Well, then I actually will forgive that. I think it's funny. It's it's, it's a nice little bit of IMDb-ish trivia, if you know what I mean. Yeah. One thing we should touch on, because we haven't actually, was this movie doesn't have an ending. It just, like, ends very abruptly, and it ends with, like, an Apollo 13 reference, I guess. But 
it is so strange. Like you can, and Rick Friedberg talks about that in the interview, but like, it's like they just hit like cut. <laughs> and that's that. Yeah, it's clear they didn't know what they were doing by that point in the film. I mean, you you generally have, if you think of a Bond film, there'd be some sort of, you know, James Bond riding off into the sunset with the Bond girl and some sort of pun. But it really is as soon as Rancor is defeated, it's almost like a hip, 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 that's all, folks, and we're out. Yeah. Uh, hey, what can you do? Um, I did have a couple of questions for you, but did you have anything for us, Cam? I've got a few more uh, little notes I made. So, like, sure. you have a number of golf jokes in this movie that are very clear references to Leslie Nielsen's work with Rick Friedberg. So I thought, in terms of, like, you know, directorial flourishes, there's actually some uh, noteworthy stuff here tying back to earlier in their, you know, both their collaborations. Mm-hmm. Um, also, I had... There's a scene where they're on, like, a gurney going down a hill, and I was like, is that an intentional Moonraker riff? Or one that's accidental? Given the level we're dealing with with this film, I think it's accidental. You think so? Yeah. Okay. Um, Another little bit, there's a Three Stooges reference where he is like putting up his hand to stop, you know, two fingers from poking him in the eyes. The way that is shot is like exactly like Army of Darkness, where Bruce Campbell did a a bit like that in, I guess, 1992, I think that movie uh, came out. And I was like, every time I've seen that shot in this movie, I'm like, that is staged exactly like Army of Darkness. And I'm unclear if that's a specific choice or what's going on there. Well, if you get a riff off of something, riff off of a good film, Army of Darkness is probably Raimi's best picture. And just given his son's age, you know, Jason Friedberg and Aaron Seltzer, like they would have been in their early 20s when Army of Darkness comes out. So that is prime Army of Darkness watching time. (laughs) We were missing that sort of like uh, animal tracking shot in this. We'd like to have seen that. That's true. That's true. The POV shot. Yeah. Or like, or like eyeball stuff. I want yeah. eyeball stuff in, in Spy Hard. And my last note was about the covert ops building. Did you notice anything, I don't know, strange about that building? Those establishing shots? No. Nothing? No. Okay, describe what you saw in those shots. Like a, a fountain and some like waterfalls and two guards, pretty much. And you see the shark fins as well. And um, like a dog chasing the guy. Did you look at the building itself? No. I, I'm interested to see what this leads to. The seven dwarfs are carved into that building. Really? Yeah, and I guess they use one of the Disney buildings on the lot. But I had not noticed that until I watched it this time where I was suddenly like, wait a second, the seven dwarfs are all like carved into the into the walls of the building. That actually makes sense for it being like a secret agent building as well. Like who runs these things? Probably dope, dopey and sleepy. Yeah, it's actually kind of funny. Well, I, f- I felt dopey and sleepy after watching this. <laughs> it's like a, I mean, it's just by circumstance, you know, they're using this building on the Disney lot, but it works out, I think, pretty well as a subtle joke. Yeah, I, I didn't spot it at all. I'll look out for it if I ever go back to this film. So never. Uh, in terms of notes I had, firstly, Bud Fudlacker as a spy name, pretty terrific. Definitely better than Paul K. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, that that should be your new, like, instead of a can provocateur, just nine. Bud Fudlacker. <laughs> um, at one point... Liam Neeson mentions uh, toilet paper inside or outside. Uh, apparently, if you're insane, you do it on the inside. And now I need to ask you, 
when you change your toilet paper can? Is it on the inside or the outside? Scott, this movie has made you really punchy because you just referred to him as Liam Neeson. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> I do not have a particular set of skills today. <laughs> Spy Hard, the reboot, coming soon, starring Liam Neeson. <laughs> Good God, man. It's Liam Neeson. <laughs> Don't give them ideas. Um, uh, as you, you were saying, the toilet paper, what was it? Rolled which way? Like inside or outside? Like which way does your toilet paper fall? This is the question we need to be asking on episode 100. Over the top. Well, that, it, it will always be that way. But like, does it fold against the wall or does it fold like closest to you? Closest to me. Okay. Then, then you are a sane person. Good. Uh, and the last note I had, and I put a pin in this at the start of the episode. And just to close us off, I want to bring it around full circle. Does this film signal the end of spoof movies? Mm, of this type of spoof movie? Yes, I think it does. Um, I haven't revisited Wrongfully Accused. I will not be revisiting Wrongfully Accused. But that one was, was also like kind of the same kind of thing. Very like scattershot. And um, you then go into like 2001 A Space Travesty. Like the scary movies have their upside so maybe people would say that no they actually did recover because like scary movie at least one in three were pretty popular um but i feel like maybe they're the last gasp before we kind of go down the whole you know epic movie and all those types of movies which i'm sure amuse 10 year olds like you know considerably but like spoof movies were often critical favorites like movies like naked gun got really good reviews mm -hmm. um and that stopped being the case with that sort of 2000s era of spy movies where they became like just movies for teenagers and no one else well they were intelligent at some point yeah yeah um well what was because obviously this is this is leslie nelson without zucker and abrams where were they at this point what were they doing um god i'm trying to think like i know one of them directed scary movie three um and i believe one of the Zuckers directed An American Carol, which was like a kind of like right-wing spoof movie. Um, so that's a bit of a strange one. But no like big hits like Airplane or Naked Gun really since. Spaceballs, all done. Scary Movie 3 was actually a big hit. It actually did better than Scary Movie 2. But yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I can't think of anything I've really liked in terms of spoof movies. The scary movie one and three and two, I think, was funny enough. I reference it from time to time. Uh, but those films just sort of hit at the right time for me being in my late teens. And it's sort of thing you'd watch with friends around. Right. Yeah. I'm not sure I want to go back and revisit them now. No, like I would go back and rewatch like the Naked Guns and maybe even like the Hot Shots movies and some of the Mel Brooks stuff, which was, you know, really clever back in the day, like silent movie. But like... um the ones that kind of fell in this 90s, 2000s, I don't know if there's many I'd revisit. It does feel like a shame. It feels like a, like, I don't know if comedy films really, really stretch themselves anymore, really go for clever laughs. Whereas I think those early spoof films were cerebral comedies that, were, that had like slapstick gangs you can laugh at, but there was also a lot to dig into, like all that forced perspective stuff they used to do. I always think about that phone gag in Top Secret. Yeah. I always go back to that. Um, just a funny moment and it doesn't require any lines it's just a visual gag but yeah I, I think gone are those days but there's a lot of genres of films that have just died away over the years you don't see many westerns anymore no that's true I mean 
they do crank out the odd western in a year, but they're not big hits usually. They tend to have their audience, and I think you'll probably see more westerns on TV because mm-hmm. um, that just seems like a good place for them now. Um, but like I was just thinking about it, like I wonder if the whole thing with the spoofs was they kind of went two different directions, where it's like they went towards those you know epic movie etc. Kind of like you know scattershot. Here's what's popular right now. Let's just make fun of it. Um, type of movie, but then you also get in '97 you get Austin Powers, which sends the spoof in a whole different direction, which is creating original characters that feel like actual characters as opposed to just kind of like feeling characters, like which is what Spy Hard's doing, and I think it sometimes works. Which it's here's Leslie Nielsen in a spy movie. When you get to Austin Powers, they're creating organic characters, and they do that in Grimsby. They do that in Johnny English. It's about creating new characters and spoofing a genre while also kind of paying tribute to it. I, I can tell you what the Zuckers were doing at the point when this film was being put together, and that is Basketball. Oh, okay, which does have its fans. I never saw it. Yeah, I've never seen it either. Um, it, it's, it's got the South Park lads, right, involved. Yeah, correct. Yeah, yeah. okay. Well, yeah, we, we've always got those films to go back to, I would say. Um, but that wraps me up for any notes, Cam, anything for you? No, that wraps me up as well. Well, for the hundredth time, Cam, I'd uh, shake your hand, but I don't know where it landed, and I don't know where this film will land on the knock list. That was a really hard one to pull off. Um, what do you think? No, I mean, I would love to have a spy movie spoof on the knock list. And I mean, we did put, you know, Our Man Flint, but that's not really a spoof. That's more of just kind of a... It is kind of a spoof. It is definitely lampooning several aspects of the spy movie in the 60s, at least. That's true. Um, But this one, to me, it's just, it's too scattershot. And it just feels a little bit kind of, oh boy, crudely assembled in a way. And we've talked about the budget. And Rick Friedberg talks about a lot of the studio problems in the uh, interview we're going to, you know, release this week. So, like, listen to that interview for sure. It's just fascinating just to hear from someone talk about making a film in Hollywood through a studio system that can often interfere with the creative process. Is it just an interesting interview in that regard for sure? Um, but this one, it just feels kind of compromised. It also feels like far less um, inspired than even what Leslie Nielsen was doing around this time point. So it's a no for me. And, and yeah, we, we are being harsh on this film and I think deservedly so, but no one is more harsh on this film than Rick Friedberg. Um, when we talked to him, he, he, takes it apart and tells you us exactly what went wrong um so i don't feel bad for for poking holes in this film because the holes are already there i'm just pointing them out to people and in terms of my thoughts i think this film amazingly despite being under 80 minutes outstays its welcome much like us after 100 episodes um and there's no saving it despite having the performances from leslie nielsen or, or leslie nielsen or liam nielsen or Liam Neeson, whoever it is, whoever is Agent WD-40, perhaps he is a spy, perhaps he is a cipher. We don't know truly who he is. Despite those performances, it cannot be saved. And it's a shame to end 100 episodes on this film in a way, but also I think it's a really interesting film to talk about because people have this built-in nostalgia for the 90s. But I think you should never meet your heroes. (laughs) Don't go back. Let the past die, as they said in The Last Jedi. I, you know, I don't like revisiting films I used to like as a kid, especially comedies, because I feel like they just completely date themselves. 
And this is exactly what I was worried about when I revisited the film. Yeah, you often go in, you know, arms wide open, ready to embrace the nostalgia of your youth. And then you wind up like that horse going off the uh, the building in this, doing the Mr. Ed, like, whoa, <laughs> as it goes over <laughs> when you actually watch the movie. Damn, that's my outro, Cam. How dare you? You know, that's another Never Say Never Again reference. Because it Never Say Never Again is a good film. It's no, a another movie. horse going off a, a cliff. No, I know. I was just trying to. Yeah. I was just trying to save Never Say Never Again. No, nope, can't be um, done. Okay, well, shut up, Cam. Um, well, there you go, folks. That's two no's, and as such, Spy Hard is not making the Spy Hards not list, and the dossier on the film is complete and filed as classified. Now, Cam, I did tease it at the start, but what are we doing next week? We are in honor of. 100 episodes going to re-examine the knock list and we are going to determine what is the best film on the knock list yeah we're really going for sort of the champion of champions here we're going to break it down into brackets head to head between each film and we're going to come up with one winner in the end and hopefully we'll revisit this again when we get to 200 because we've got a very long list of spy movies to get through and a lot of big franchises that we haven't covered yet. And you may already be thinking of the film that will make the top of the knock list. And if you want to find out more from the knock list, you can go to letterbox.com slash spyhards and you can see the films that have made the knock list and prepare yourself for next week, which is your mission, of course, should you choose to accept it, is to join us as we crown the best of the best, the champion of champions, the true cream of the crop of our first 100 spy movies that we've covered. And if you want to, hey, go back and listen to the rest of the 100 episodes just because. And in the meantime, make sure you've uh, checked out any episodes you have missed just to make sure, especially the ones that have made the knock list. And here are our thoughts on those. And join us next week. Do not forget to follow us discreetly on social media at SpyHards. That's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But until next week, listeners, remember, crazy crazy well that's walking down the street with half a cantaloupe on your head muttering i think spy hard is a good movie